Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? Doing well, thanks, Pete. How are you today? I'm doing great. Before we get started, I should mention that the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Society, the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or the institutions of any of our guests. Today, we're going to be doing something unique. I've asked Bill Mallon, the editor-in-chief of the Shoulder and Elbow Surgery, to pick his favorite GSES articles from 2019, and then we've contacted the authors for a few of these articles, and we're going to interview them. Our hope is this provides listeners with some highlights from the journal and a little bit more of a deep dive on some of the highlights. First, we have Caitlin Rugg. Caitlin is a resident at the University of California in San Francisco. She's headed to Duke for a sports fellowship next year, and she performed the study while a resident at UCSF. The study is entitled The Impact of Prior Upper Extremity Surgery on Orthopedic Injury and Surgery in Collegiate Athletes. Caitlin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dr. Chalmers and Dr. Frank for hosting me today. Caitlin, can you give us a two-minute summary of your study? Absolutely. So this study was actually initiated when I was a medical student at University of California, Los Angeles. Um, when I was working there with Dr. Haim, uh, Dr. Sharon Haim, who's in the sports division there, we initiated a um, study to examine how collegiate athletes who came in with a prior history of orthopedic surgery did during their collegiate athletic careers. So specifically, we used pre-participation evaluation forms to identify those athletes who had had prior orthopedic surgery and then followed them throughout their collegiate careers to determine the injuries, the surgeries, and what um, and how many days missed they had in their collegiate careers. This particular study is one of a series of, of studies that we publish out of the database that I built during my time as a medical student uh, at UCLA, along with uh, Eric Mayer and Dean Wang, who are, um, uh, Eric Mayer's uh, now a, a resident at UCLA, and Dr. Wang is uh, down at UC Irvine now. Um, and so we built this database, and then we used the database to examine how athletes who had had a prior history of upper extremity surgery did during their college careers. So specifically in this study, we had retrospective data from athletes who began participation at UCLA between 2003 and 2009. And those study, those athletes were then followed during their collegiate careers, which could be four or five years. And we had a sports injury monitoring system, which we queried to determine what types of injuries those athletes had during college. We also used the medical record, the electronic medical record, to determine what MRIs and x-rays they had performed and any surgeries they had performed during their collegiate careers. And then using that data, we were able to look back and examine what, um, what the impact of an upper extremity surgery was on the collegiate athlete. So in terms of the, the major findings of the study, we did find that a history of upper extremity surgery was associated with having an upper extremity injury in college and increased days missed uh, of the sport during college um, due to upper extremity injury. And specifically, when we looked at athletes that had um, upper extremity surgeries prior to college, we broke them out into shoulder surgery, elbow surgery, or wrist and hand surgery. And within those groups, we found that the athletes with prior shoulder surgery were the ones that were likely to undergo subsequent surgery in college as well as more likely to miss days due to injury, up to 77 days of, uh, of days missed in that group. And so in conclusion, you know, we determined that 
athletes who have a prior upper extremity surgery before coming into college do miss more days or due to upper extremity injury and have more upper extremity surgeries in college. But specifically within the, the subgroup analysis, we found that it was really the athletes who had a history of shoulder surgery rather than those who, with elbow or wrist and hand surgery who went on to have those outcomes. Caitlin, it's certainly impressive work and especially being at a, a single institution, but over a long time period. You know, one of the things that we think and, and most likely the readers of this article think is most impressive is that you're a student and then a resident working on this multidisciplinary collaborative group of physicians, athletic trainers, strength and conditioning coaches and, and trainers and whatnot. How did you accomplish that? How, what were, you know, how did you get this done? Because that's a really big group of people to try to get to cooperate and collaborate on a single study like this um, or on a single database, I guess, to, to track the athletes. So how did you get that done? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. So I um, first met Dr. Haim during my first year of medical school and um, started shadowing her and working with her and was actually able to go to the training room with her and start to see some athletes in the training room. And by just going out to the training room, I was able to meet with some of the athletic trainers as well as some of the um, some of the physical therapists that actually work with the, the athletes there. And Dr. Haim and I, in the course of that year, came up with this research idea. And then during the summer between my first and second year of medical school, I received a grant from my medical school to perform the, to essentially build the database out that summer. And so that summer, I actually spent, um, I was nearly full time down in the training room. And I was looking at paper charts, recording the pre-participation evaluation form um, information, going through the sports injury monitoring system with the help of the athletic trainers and physical therapists who really helped me interpret how the sports injury monitoring system was being used for injury tracking in our athletes. And so they were invaluable in, in helping me uh, you know, parse out some of the data that had maybe unclear um, uh, interpretation and, and helped me you know, be able to label each of the athletes accurately. Additionally, I needed to, you know, distribute the athletes into which teams they had been on and what years they participated. And so that was also really helpful coming out of that, um, that group of athletic trainers and physical therapists. So it was one of the, my first experiences working on a multidisciplinary team. And I have to say it really has served me well going forward. Um, as we all know, so much of our jobs is working on teams, um, and being able to communicate effectively. Things. Caitlin, I think is really cool about the studies that you actually, not only did you work on this, this multi-person team, but you really, there's a lot of perseverance in this. I mean, you set this up as a medical student and now this paper is, you know, we're talking about this seven years later. Did I do the math right there? That's, it's been seven years since you set this up? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. It was the summer of 2011, 2012 that I initiated the database. Um, and then I subsequently recruited Dr. Mayer, who's now a resident at UCLA. Um, to continue on with data collection in the year following. So we were able to expand the database the second year. Um, and that was the cohort that we ended up using for this study was that expanded database cohort. And so um, as you can see, it, it did take us a while to uh, finish the kind of complete the data collection and accurately analyze everything. But in the end, we we're really proud of the products we were able to make out of these out of the data that we're collecting and additionally i would like to mention that you know one of the reasons we don't have data past 2014 is we actually switched 
injury monitoring data systems at UCLA in that time period. And so we were limited in our, um, you know, what years we could really include past that point. So I mean, we have a lot of listeners to our podcast that are um, medical students or, you know, residents or people in training. And I think that one of the reasons why I think the study is so interesting is because it demonstrates just how much perseverance, how long it takes to really see the, the, the fruits of your labor and research. I mean, it was, so I think it's, I would be congratulated for that. Kim, this data is really striking. You know, when I look through your tables, over half of the UCLA women's gymnastics team had had prior surgery. 31% had an upper extremity injury during college. Two thirds of the women's tennis players had an upper extremity injury during college. Over 50% of women's volleyball players had an upper extremity injury during college. So, I mean, that, and that matches with my experience caring for the University of Utah women's gymnastics, volleyball, tennis teams. We talk about football all the time, but these sports make men's football with a 24% prior injury and upper extremity injury during college look really safe, which is not how we think about football. So my question to you is, was this data surprising to you? And do you think this data maybe says that we, maybe we need a little more awareness around upper extremity injury in collegiate women's athletics? Yeah, that's an excellent point that you make. I was very much struck by this data when it was coming out of the SIM system. I think prior to this point, we hadn't really created an aggregate um, uh, database that examined all of these injury rates um, before we, we started to look at it. But if you look in the literature, it really does match. As you mentioned, it does match the, the data that's coming out of other collegiate athlete databases and matches a lot of the NC2A data. So while it was surprising and sort of almost shocking to see those rates, it's not, um, it's not out of the ordinary that at UCLA we were seeing this. Um, and in terms of, I agree, you know, the pre-collegiate surgery rates in some of the sports were actually, you know, incre- impressively high, especially with gymnastics, which I, I think has not been really um, reported on in the, in the media or in the literature. And again, with women's sports at the collegiate athlete level, it is, you know, evident out of this data, as well as data out of the NC2A, that this, this population is absolutely at increase for upper extremity injury. And while these injuries aren't all the same amount of time loss as a lot of the lower extremity injuries that we see in football and soccer, basketball, uh, they still warrant our attention because there are long-term, uh, long-term consequences of some of these injuries, So, especially the recurrent injuries. And so I do think it is an area that's, that needs further focus. It's certainly amazing work. I mean, this data is really, really important, and I hope this helps surgeons treating these athletes, and in particular, the female athlete at this likely vulnerable time in the pre-collegiate as well as collegiate um, era. Um, under, I hope it helps these physicians understand these athletes a little bit better and uh, maybe be more aware of these potential injuries, especially to the upper extremity and in um, in sports that we may not, again, think of as otherwise having so many injuries, such as football, as Pete was mentioning. As you enter practice, Caitlin, and begin caring for these athletes, whether they're high school, collegiate, um, semi-pro, pro, or the weekend warrior, how is this study, how is this data and your approach to analyzing and evaluating these patients, how is this going to change your management of these athletes? And in particular, in the collegiate athlete, where you'll have a lot of experience with this in fellowship next year. Yeah, that's a great question. So I think that you can sort of ex- take the data and look at two different populations of of athletes that you may, may be counseling and families you may be counseling. So first of all, sort of the pre-collegiate athlete, frequently high school athletes who are coming in and um, and play some of these higher risk sports for upper extremity injury and upper extremity surgery. And I think that 
if you have an athlete who's considering a, an, an elite career, that it is important for, for the families to be aware of how uh, an, an upper extremity surgery in, in high school can actually impact their collegiate career. And specifically, I think that my goal as a surgeon would be to appropriately counsel not only the families, but also the physical therapists and athletic trainers who are working with these athletes to focus on their rehabilitation so that they aren't put into this higher risk category of having more injuries during college, potentially having a recurrent injury necessitating surgery in college. And so involving the whole, the whole team that's taking care of the athlete and um, so that everybody's aware that they are now in this higher risk group if they've had an upper extremity surgery is really important. And then at the college level, I think, um, as you mentioned, many team physicians have the sense of these injuries occurring, but it hasn't previously been a focus as has like football or contact injuries um, and soccer, uh, basketball, some of the major lower extremity injury sports. But with this data, I think we can go forward to, you know, treating our collegiate athletes and really assessing their readiness to return to sport if they've had a prior upper extremity injury, you know, or prior upper extremity surgery, that we need to really examine whether they're returning in a safe fashion, whether they have any residual deficits that need to be addressed such that we can minimize their chance of recurrence, minimize the number of days they're missing, and minimize their chance of getting another surgery in college. Well, Caitlin, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast and telling us about your research. Um, congratulations once again, once again on your study, and um, I hope you'll continue this work in the future. Thank you very much for having me, and I look forward to listening to the other authors on the podcast. Next up, we have Dr. Joseph Rusbarski. Joe was a resident at the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York City when he performed this study with Russ Warren. He's now a sports fellow at Vail, where he'll be staying for another year for a hip preservation fellowship. His article is The Fragility of Findings of Randomized Controlled Trials in Shoulder and Elbow Surgery. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Dr. Chalmers. Thank you for having me. So can you give us a two-minute summary of your study? Sure. Uh, so what we did was a randomized controlled trial uh, or excuse me, a systematic review of randomized controlled trials in the field of shoulder and elbow surgery. Um, we And we, what we wanted to focus on was a metric entitled the Fragility Index, um, which is an index that can only be applied to studies that compare two outcome, group, to outcome groups of dichotomous variables, which report a statistically significant result. And the Fragility Index is the minimum number of patients whose status would have to change from a non-event to event in order to turn a statistically significant result uh, to a non-significant result. So therefore, the more sequential exchanges, the more robust the results effectively. So it's an easy, understandable metric. Um, we also, in this uh, systematic review of randomized control trials, looked to um, really critically evaluate um, the RCTs that existed in the shoulder and elbow literature. Now, Joe, one of the findings that I think is most striking from your study is that you, so you reviewed a bunch of aspects of study quality. One of them was whether or not the study had a pre-study power analysis. Yes. But you also then reviewed this fragility index and you found that while most of these studies did have a power analysis and most studies, a change of just two patients would have changed their results. Mm -hmm. So my question to you is this, do you, do you think that we need to change the way that we do power analyses? And if you were to design a randomized clinical trial, how would you ensure that it was not just adequately powered, but also avoid fragility? Yes. 
Um, yeah, and one thing that we reported on is that really only 60% performed a pre-study power analysis. Um, and that number could have been more, but that's all that was reported in the methods of these randomized controlled trials. And I thought that was somewhat alarming, um, you know, given that the expense and time and effort required to do a randomized controlled trial. Um, and so if I were designing one myself, um, I think there should, and there are existing metrics uh, and guidelines to follow when designing a study. And obviously a pre-study power analysis is necessary. And then if funding uh, or um, patient enrollment in a certain time period is problem, uh, creates a problem, then uh, I recommend uh, potentially looking into multi-center collaboration. And then, and then finally, if a, uh, a well-executed uh, randomized controlled trial is not possible, uh, I think really the recommendation is that there's still other study designs uh, that could give you a use that could give you useful information including um case well-designed case control studies or matched cohort studies that could really provide valuable information i think something that um one of the purposes that why we started um talking about the fragility index is because i think uh we have become enamored with level one and level two evidence um and sometimes i think methodological methodological quality could really suffer uh, at times and that lesser level of evidence studies can still provide incredibly useful information if performed well. You know, it's really interesting. You know, it's kind of like one of my mentors, actually one of Pete's mentors too, would say there's no free lunch. You know, when you mm -hmm. do, when you want to perform a level one or level two study, you do that and it's, it's great. It's highly reviewed by the journals, but as you're pointing out, there's some inherent challenges with these types of studies. And that's really with any study. After doing this uh, particular paper, you've reviewed some of our most important studies within the field of shoulder and elbow surgery. Certainly, we hope more of these studies, but quality studies of this type are performed in the future. And so for our listeners, when they read one of these studies, can you give us a few tips that they should look for to look out um, and make sure that the findings are robust, that they can rely on them, and that these studies help them with their practices? Certainly. Uh, so I think I think the fragility index is catching on, and I, I think that um, I know we sometimes uh, have see too many statistics, and it could be a bit confusing. But I think it's a an integer value that could provide you an idea, at least of the roughness, like a rough estimate on the robustness of the findings of the study. So I think reporting that as a standard um, would be helpful because it's a, as I said a simple metric. But then outside of that. Um, things to look for when reading a randomized controlled trial, which we found some uh, deficiencies, at least in this systematic review, were uh, do they report a primary outcome? What, is, what exactly do they name? Um, did they perform a pre-study power analysis? Uh, do they report patient loss to follow-up? Um, somewhat alarming finding of this systematic review is that um, of the 16 studies that reported loss to follow-up, um, actually 14 of them, if it, for, in 14 of the studies, the number lost of follow-up exceeded the fragility index. So had those patients just uh, not been lost to follow-up, and they were, if they were all to go to one of the uh, outcome groups in the study, that could have completely reversed the conclusions of the trial. So that's a, uh, a somewhat uh, worrisome fact. Um, so I think, you know, when reading a randomized controlled trial, those additional things are incredibly important to look for as the reader to make your own evaluation as to the methodological quality of the trial. Joe, looking through your tables, there's a lot of studies that have a fragility index of zero. What, what mm -hmm. does that mean? And, and do your findings look different if we exclude those studies? 
Mm -hmm. So we um, we actually excluded them from our um, you know our summary analysis. Um, but typically, what that means uh, was that when we took the actual data and you know, performed a Fisher Exact test uh, to look for statistical significance, we found that um, that the the, the p-value was above 0.05. Uh, so in most cases, what this meant was uh, the study uh, used a chi-squared test as opposed to a Fisher exact test. And in this specific uh, systematic review, um, uh, the chi-squared the chi-squared chi test should not have been used. It should have been a Fisher exact test. Um, and what this comes down to is when, and since these were all um, studies that were allocated patients in a one-to-one -one ratio, uh, and they were all dichotomous variables. Um, the Fisher exact test is the more appropriate statistical test if any one of the uh, values in the two by two table uh, is a number of five or less. And so each of these studies um, fulfilled that requirement and therefore should have used a Fisher exact test, but instead use a chi-square test, which is less accurate um, when the numbers get smaller. Um, so they actually had p-values of greater than 0.05. And so what we did just for analysis sakes was uh, excluded them. And just to clarify, the fertility index goes both ways, right? Like you would have found a difference where there wasn't one, or you did find a difference where there was one. It accounts for both type two and type one error, correct? We um, uh, it only accounts for a type one error in the in the method that we have ran it. You could um, you could conceivably do it the opposite way additionally, but we only ran it um, looking at type one error. So interesting. So the number may even be larger than that. Mm -hmm. It's super interesting. Joe, when you look at this study and, and what it took to get it done and how you approach looking at the literature in the future as you guide patients in your practice for evidence-based clinical decision-making, how does this study change your practice? You know, you've got another year of fellowship to go, um, which, you know, in these times is, is not the worst thing in the world. And you'll become an expert in hip preservation and um, hip surgery in addition to sports medicine surgery. And you're going to have to be critically analyzing the literature to apply it to your practice. And now knowing what you know about how some of these level one and level two studies actually are performed and what they mean, how is this going to change your practice and how is it going to change your approach to research moving forward? I think um, what it come down, comes down to, and I alluded to this earlier, is just um, you know, going through each randomized controlled trial and not kind of being awed by the fact that it has a uh, high level of evidence assigned to it. Uh, and really uh, read the paper, read the methods, um, and make critical determinations on what, whether or not you thought it was well-designed. And only then um, kind of um, appreciate and uh, make clinical decision-making based upon those results. I think uh, overall, um, I think the pendulum maybe have, has swung too far uh, towards level of evidence uh, where we become enamored by that. Uh, but I think, uh, critical evaluation remains important and that lesser level of evidence studies can still be incredibly valuable. Well, Joe, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast and telling us about your research. We wish, wish the best of luck with your additional year in Vail. And um, thanks again. We, we really appreciate this opportunity to talk to you about it. Next up, we have Dr. Bill Mallon, the current editor-in-chief for the Journal of Shoulder and Elbow Surgery. Bill was kind enough to help us to pick these articles. Bill, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, thank you, Peter. It's good to be here. Rachel? Bill, the last article we plan to discuss is Doctor, When Can I Drive? The Range of Motion of While Driving a Car in the Elbow. 
by Latz and colleagues from Dusseldorf. Bill, can you give us some insight as to why you picked this article as one of your favorites from 2019? Well, yeah, it's something different, and it's something important. I mean, uh, you know, you guys know when you're in clinical practice, you get questions like this all the time from patients. Uh, you know, when can I resume my normal life activities? You know, for for upper extremity, you know, when you know athletes are saying, when can I go back to my sport? And you know, everyday non-athletes are saying, can I drive my car? Can I go to work? Uh, you know, for hip and knee doctors, you know, one of their questions was always, you know, can I have sex again and things like that. And studies like that are not uh, done as often as, you know, range of motion and stuff like that. Um, so I thought this was interesting and something important. Yeah, it's always one of the first questions patients ask us is when can I drive or when can I do this? It's not so much, you know, they're interested in getting back to function and sport and activities. Um, but really, the activities of daily living, including driving, can be very frustrating for patients, particularly if they're independent and they don't have anyone to help them. Um, the results of this study are pretty striking. The authors found that for all types of driving, the right arm needs to have a larger arc of motion than the left arm. should be noted, though, that in this study, the test subjects were driving manual transmission vehicles. Bill, do you think that with an automatic transmission, which is potentially more common, at least in the United States, that both arms could be equal, or do you still think the right arm would have to be greater with regard to motion than the left arm? Yeah, um, that's a good point. I I still think the right arm might need more um, pronation, which was the biggest thing they found um, uh, at the elbow, um, mainly just because when you're turning the steering wheel, I think you're going to pronate more with the right arm uh, for some reason, because the turn is sharper. Um, you know, we, you guys might not remember this, um, but there was a study about at least 10 years ago, it might've been 15 years ago in JBJS that talked about, can you drive with a sling? And um, again, getting back to why I chose this and why it's important and what you said, Rachel, about, you know, you get asked this all the time, when that study came out, again, 10 to 15 years ago, they said that at that time, driving with a sling or a shoulder mobilizer on was illegal in like 37 states or some enormous number of states. And, you know, I practiced in North Carolina, so I immediately had to call and find out, is it is it legal in North Carolina? And I bet you you guys don't know if it's legal in Colorado or Utah, do you? I, I don't, don't I know, know that. Know <laughs> Pete, <laughs> you know but I mean, these questions, that, that's why this article was so interesting to me, because these are questions that we get all the time. And there's important things to, you know, think about it. And, you know, if a guy gets in an accident driving with a sling on, he's probably liable, even if it isn't illegal. Um, you know, uh, there's certainly, you know, on late night TV, I know some lawyer is going to show up. If you've been injured by someone driving a car with a sling, you know, call Ringham, Dingham, and gouge him, and we'll uh, get you millions of dollars. So uh, we need to know this stuff. Yeah, I, I often advise our patients against driving with a sling, but I don't think that they listen to me. Certainly, all of our paperwork says that. One of the things that was also interesting about this study about about the elbow range of motion was just how much extension you need for driving. So one of the things they found is for city roads, you need 15 degrees extension. For highway driving, 
five degrees of extension. Now, one of the things that doesn't fit for me with this study is I've seen many patients with that come in preoperatively with 30 to 40 degree flexion contractures, and no one's ever complained to me that they struggled to drive. So yeah, I, I don't I, think that's fully accurate. Um, and y- you know, again, I practiced in North Carolina, which is the the home of NASCAR, and uh, so we're we're big on NASCAR there. And um, if you watch NASCAR drivers, the way they drive, they do not have their arms extended at all. They actually bring the steering wheel very close to them, and they're driving with their elbows flexed about seventy degrees. So people can compensate if they can't extend by bringing the steering wheel closer to them or bringing the the seat closer to the steering wheel, depending on, you know, how adjustable your car is. Um, So I I think that uh, doesn't really prohibit you from driving. The thing I found interesting about this was the the article was, you know, the classic article by Maury years and years ago that showed the the functional range of motion at the elbow for uh, um, ADLs was 30 to 130 degrees. And this almost made it. I mean, if you had 30 to 130 degrees, you can basically drive, I think. Um, and it, for pronation, supination, it was 50-50. And again, uh, what, I, what I gleaned out of this was if you've got functional range of motion, you can drive comfortably. So that's the important thing to get back um, before you let them drive. Yeah, it's super interesting to look at this study and think about what real life implications it has. And Certainly as surgeons, we have a primary responsibility to our patients, but also a secondary responsibility to society in general. And, you know, if we tell a patient it's okay to do this, and then they do whatever that thing is, in this case, driving, and then they get in an accident, is that, um, is is it partly our fault because we said it's okay for them to drive? So based on, you know, these results, do you think surgeons should advise their patients not to drive if their arc of motion is less than the numbers provided here? Or do you think it's more complicated in that this is one study that we can reference, but shouldn't be the end-all be-all? I think it's the latter, uh, Rachel. Um, I don't think it's the end-all be-all because what I because of what I said about how NASCAR drivers drive with the steering wheel very close to them. So I think if you can't extend all the way, as Peter was talking about, you can get by with less extension just by uh, adjusting your position relative to the steering wheel. But I, I think you're exactly right that orthopedic surgeons need to realize, and you you said it great, Rachel, that, you know, we're protecting society too. If we send someone out and say, oh yeah, you can drive. And then he goes out and, you know, he can't control the car and, you know, runs over some guy, you know, we're liable for that probably. And um, we need to worry about that and think about that and make sure that uh, our patients are safe to drive before we tell them they can do it. And um, you're, you're also right that our patients probably don't listen to us too much. Uh, you know, I had a, a friend of mine that was a fellow at Duke when I was a resident, and he said uh, he'd been a motorcycle racer, and he'd had three tibial shaft fractures, and he said, listen, if they put a long leg cast on you and you keep it on for three months, you know, you're not compliant. You're a saint because um, he cut the cast off every time, and, and he, he's an orthopedic surgeon, so that tells you what our patients are doing. So one, one follow-up to that, you know, it, one of the things that I've found um, most challenging, whether it be for shoulder surgery with a sling or knee surgery with a brace or a cast or something like that, you know, you get the patient where they're in a sling for four to six weeks, say it's a massive cuff or something like that, and you're really trying to go slow in six weeks, 
And yet you do want to start some physical therapy or they're the sole person in their, their household and they need to go to the grocery store or, or whatnot. And the only way that they say they can do it is to drive. What do you tell that patient? I, I think we all have our own strategies, but, you know, based on your, you know, years and decades in, in practice, what are your strategies for that and that particular patient? That's a great question. Um, I tell them, I advise you not to drive, but I understand you have a life to live and you have to do things. And if you have to drive, I want you just to be as careful as you can. Um, drive slowly, uh, you know, make sure you're under control uh, as much as you can. And uh, if you need to get assistance, get it. Uh, in this era, um, as opposed to when I started in practice, you know, we could be telling them, you know, take an Uber, um, you know, get some help, uh, have them drive you. Yeah, I didn't even think about advising people to get an Uber to the grocery store. That's uh, that's a great advice, especially for someone where you really worry that they could be putting someone else at risk. I mean, I, I worry about that all the time with patients driving because these days so many of the people around them are texting. I tell people all the time, it's not you that I worry about. It's your reduced reaction to someone around you who's maybe not paying as close attention. And then that that causes a chain reaction that can result in a big accident. Um. Bill, I, I appreciate you talking this through with us. We had also discussed a couple of other articles um, with their authors. One of the ones we discussed was Joe Rosbarski's systematic review regarding fragility of randomized clinical trials and shoulder surgery. I thought it was super interesting you picked this one, given I'm sure the number of randomized clinical trials you reviewed. Tell us a little bit about why you picked that article and how you think that it affects the way we should think about our literature. Well, I picked that because, first of all, fragility studies of uh, literature articles um, are fairly new. I only became aware of them about three, four years ago. Um, and as editor of the journal, if someone's gonna be aware of them, I should be. And I think they're very important. Um, almost all the fragility studies I've seen usually show that, you know, when we see articles, people always talk about, is it statistically significant? And then secondly, is it clinically significant? Does it make the MCID? But what, what the fragility studies show that even if it is statistically significant, and even if it made the MCID, the, the study may be very fragile in that, let's say you have 50 patients and 34 of them achieved a certain result. What the fragility studies show that if you change that from 34 to 33, it may not have been statistically significant at that level. So it's a very fragile study in that just a minor change in the outcome could change the actual results of the study um, as to what they could tell you know, the public. Um, and it, it shows us how a lot of our studies are underpowered. Um, I don't know if you guys were there, it might have been just before you got into ASDS, but about three, four years ago, Mohit Bandari out of Toronto gave a great talk at ASDS talking about the most important thing we should do in our studies is have bigger numbers. Uh, we need big numbers to be able to really tell if what we're doing um, is clinically um, and statistically significant. You know, he, he discussed uh, a study, you probably all have heard about it, and this is the one about, um, uh, it was tibial shaft fractures, and it was irrigating with soap versus saline, and when they, first started the study, um, they were proving that soap was uh, more significant than saline and it was better. 
But when they got up to like 700 cases or something like that, it actually went the other way. You were better off just irrigating with saline. And, uh, you know, it just shows how important it is to get big numbers in studies. And that's what fragility indexes are showing, that, you know, even though we may have statistical significance, we may have clinical significance, this isn't something that, you know, you should sit there and say, you have to do this every time because this study showed. The studies are very fragile. Um, we probably don't have big enough numbers to be really dogmatic about conclusions very often. That was a long answer. I'm yeah, sorry. I, <laughs> no, it was, it was awesome. I, I remember that uh, talk that Bendari gave, and I, I remember the same thing, sitting in the audience spellbound, thinking to myself, you, everything I'm doing is underpowered, not by a couple of patients, by like an order of magnitude or two. Exactly. Um, it's an order of magnitude. It really is. Um, well, Bill, I can't tell you how much we appreciate your insights on this elbow about the article, but also, of course, about the other uh, articles. And we appreciate your, your help picking these. And um, I don't promise we won't make you do this again in a year. Thank you again for so much for coming on the podcast again. We really appreciate your time. No problem. Thanks very much, Rachel. Peter. Bill, thanks so much for being here. And that's really all the time we have for this podcast. Thank you so much to all of our guests. For all of our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe. And for Peter Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.